With the Inflation Reduction Act now law, there are mounting concerns that its drug pricing provisions will have a negative impact on the California biotech ecosystem, arguably the globe's leading hub for innovative biotech. Joseph Panetta is president and CEO of Biocom California, the trade association representing the California life science industry, leading 1,700 biotech, medical device, diagnostic, and genomic and digital health companies, as well as research universities, institutes, and service providers. Joe's been at the head of Biocom since 1999 and is universally regarded as one of the world's thought leaders in biotech. Joe, it's always a pleasure to see you, sir. Dwayne, thanks. It's always a pleasure to see you. Welcome to Biocom California. Lovely to be home in California again, Joe. It's uh, always a pleasure, and the weather's always great. You forget how blessed you are here. You, you brought us the sunshine. It's yeah, from Belgium. Exactly. How ironic is that? <laughs> so last year, about this time, Bio, the big international conference, was the first time it had been held in three years, was here on your home turf in your backyard. That was the day the equity markets had tanked. Literally the day we did our interview, the markets had dropped about 30%. What's happened since last year? That's kind of a seminal issue and seminal question that, uh, that we're all dealing with right now. What happened to us in the last yeah. 12 months? And a lot of things happened that have had compounding impact on the industry. Probably the biggest thing that happened was the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which, of course, carried with it its provisions for now, so-called negotiation process for pricing of certain drugs under, under Medicare. First time in the U.S. ever uh, that the free market system for innovation and drug development was uh, attacked and, and an attack in a way that clearly the response from the industry was that this will be tremendously damaging to innovation and to patients and, and to drug development. It had um, an immediate impact, and, and I can best characterize it by saying that I was at a CEO conference not long after that here in California, where that was almost the only topic that anyone wanted to discuss. And it was... Um, I could almost say that there was sort of a panic mentality about how to deal with this. And by that, I mean, how are we going to continue to support the investment in development of new drugs when we are going to be told by the government, just as we are in other countries where we don't do innovation, that um, they'll tell us how much we're going to sell our drugs for. had an immediate impact on... Uh, on the market, had an immediate impact on uh, every sector within biotech. So I think that, that I'll lead with that. Um, on top of that, of course, a year ago, there were not only predictions that inflation would continue, but that we would go into a recession probably sometime around the middle of, of 2023. Uh, Federal Reserve began to aggressively raise interest rates. Um, that had an impact on on borrowing, and while you know a lot of biotech is dependent on venture borrowing, <laughs> a lot of biotech is also dependent on on other uh, on other types of borrowing that that involve interest rates as well, construction and, and things like that. And the VCs obviously are reliant on having getting access to their liquidity, as are yeah. Fortune 500 companies. They have rotating credit, so there's a knock-on effect of those interest rates going up. Absolutely. The uncertainty uh, geopolitically. By then, of course, uh, the, the war in Ukraine was into its third or fourth month. And uh, I, I think 
by that point, even, we began to realize that we didn't know if there was an end in sight and what that was going to mean in terms of uh, political stability um, with China and uh, in Russia and, and the U.S. Um, that created uncertainty as well. We began to see some um, aggressive action at CMS. Uh, again, you know, kind of revolutionary where they decided that they would have a hand in the process of approving an Alzheimer's drug or, or deciding whether it would be sold. So kind of a, a snowball effect of, of a number. Of, and, and it's continued on, right? Um, just recently, we had the court decision on mefepristone that was, again, you know, one of the first times that FDA's regulatory authority was actually threatened by, yeah. by a court uh, making a decision on whether something, uh, w- whether they decided something was, was safe or not. So it's just continued on. At the same time, I'll say there's still good news out there for companies with solid business plans and, and good teams and therapeutic indications that they're developing where there's a need and there's a path forward to regulatory approval. So, you know, we went through a boom period before that. A lot of companies going public that probably shouldn't have gone public yet. I think also we're in a, in a period of pretty significant adjustment right now. There's a lot there to unpack. Let's start with the IRA. We released our study at Bio. The revenue reductions are going to be 40% on that 110 drugs. And as you know from the work we've done on HR3 previously, it's really 25, 30 drugs that drive 60, 70% of the global investment. You know, it's like you have a responsibility. It's like gravity. You collect all the money. You need to invest that money now. It's just nature. It's the way it works. Because if you don't invest it, you don't have a pipeline the politicians are saying, well, it's only 10, 12, 20 drugs. Yeah, but it's like, these are the most innovative ones that are driving 60, 70% of the innovation. You know, you're cutting out 80 billion a year at the peak of IRA. It was shocking to us, the impacts. It really was quite surprising. What we weren't anticipating is the amount of concentration in just a few assets. What happens now? Because often it's that revenue that makes your members whole when they go public or when they sell or they get acquired, or they're looking for investment capital partnerships. What happens when you're sucking 80, 90 billion a year out from the most advanced, the most successful companies? It's a multifaceted yeah. kind of a, <laughs> an issue, right? It's seriously complicated as, as an issue. And thank you for all the work that, that you've done and that Vital Transformations has done to show members of Congress, show the public the impact that this would have, that it, well, it will is going have, to have, yeah. Right? So it, it's interesting uh, when you mentioned that Politicians say it's only 10 drugs. Yeah, Be- exactly. Because one reason that it's interesting is that we just, the day before yesterday in Washington, D.C., did our annual reception on Capitol Hill. You know, kind of informal, and a number of members come. And, and one of the members who was there is someone who was pretty intimately involved in, in this. And um, he and I were talking, and he said, well, you know, it shouldn't be a big issue. It's only 10 drugs. <laughs> so exactly to what you said. And, and I was able to say 10 drugs that are responsible for $80 billion. Yeah. That's all, right? So I think the first thing I'll say is I, I think, unfortunately, so, some of our members of Congress just really don't and maybe did not, when they passed this, have an appreciation for the potential full impact of this. And my message to everyone whom I talked with there, all of our representatives from California who were there, was um, that this is a disaster and that they seriously need to think about how they're going to fix this. Now, some were receptive and some just continued to talk on about how drug prices are too high. Sometimes I think it's 
despite the fact that you do so much objective, hard work to show them what this impact is, sometimes I think we're talking to a brick wall uh, because the politics are all about how they need to persuade the public that they're doing something to bring, bring drug prices down. But the bottom line is it's penny wise and pound foolish because I'll give you another example. We had some visitors here with whom we signed a, a memorandum of understanding from Korea the other day, Trade Association Korea. Very, very, very interested in partnering with us uh, to, to develop innovative products. But we um, had some panel presentations on uh, the biotech industry here, and, and one was on the IRA. And one of the members of one of the panels was the uh, research site leader here in San Diego of one of our largest pharma companies. And, you know, a research head at a research site, of course, is a few rungs down the ladder from the folks who are making the decisions back at corporate. But his comment on the IRA was that he's experiencing the impact directly because he's being told to come up with his list of what he's going to cut. He's got to cut. It's, it's a real world, everyday kind of a thing that's going on. That's the impact of this. If this year, if you went to JP Morgan, a lot of the CEOs were saying, ah, well, it's not going to be that bad. You know, it's not going to impact us. There was a lot of rhetoric that was happening around this. And I don't think the industry was well served by a lot of the CEOs. And again, let's not kid ourselves. We, we see 40 companies that are sucked into the IRA that get drawn into the Venus flytrap of negotiation. But it's really only a quarter of those that get really impacted, and they get impacted for size. But then if you saw the announcement of the lawsuit by Merck, the markets dropped 4%. Wall Street started waking up, well, maybe there is something here. Yeah. I think all of us, you know, myself as a major trade association advocacy head and the CEOs and the companies and our friends at Pharma and Bio are all trying to figure this out. So I'm not going to blame the CEOs um, because this kind of thing has never happened to us before, and it was really never anticipated. You know, we, we scored a big victory when we killed HR3. Uh, which would have directly imported uh, for European pricing. European pricing. But it came right down to the wire, Joe. It, came, it really it, did. It, it did, right? And then um, I'm going to say that we could have done uh, a more forceful job of opposing the provisions in the IRA as well. But we had a Democrat-controlled House of Representatives and Senate, and so we ended up with what, what we ended up with. And as I said, I think the first reaction was um, was panic. What just hit us? What just happened? And then I will kind of side with some of the CEOs who I think the mood was more, you know, we'll figure this out. We'll get through this. We'll, we'll figure it out. But then I think what happened was the folks – in the accounting department, put pencil to paper and started said, realizing, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, wait a yeah. minute. This is really going to hit us hard. And and, and you've shown that in, in yeah. your study, and that's what we're beginning to see now. And as we all know, it has a trickle-down effect, right? And, you know, and again, I, I, keep, I keep giving examples, you know, anecdotally, but this is what I do day to day. I was with a pretty good-sized member biotech company. And I mean biotech. I'm not talking about Pfizer. I'm talking yeah. about pretty good-sized biotech company uh, at our reception on the Hill that invests a very, very large percentage of their profits. Back on average, there. 40% for the biotech sector. Yes. And this was a new comment for me, too, that I heard, gee, our investors are saying maybe we shouldn't invest so much into R&D anymore. Wow. Right? Wow. 
these are just the kinds of, of you know, everyday real world kinds of, of wow. impacts that this is this is having. And and I'm my team and I are trying to get the point across to our elected officials that this is kind of the tip of the iceberg. And, and then at the same time, Dwayne, you know, as you know, there are conversations on the Hill about how this maybe didn't go far enough. Oh, yeah. The SMART Act, the SMART Pricing Act, which is based on the Biden budget plan. We're going to solve 9 and 13 by moving everything to 5 and 5. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I mentioned that to a couple of our members at the at the reception, not not members of the House, but our members, and they looked at me incredulously. Are you, are you kidding? Is that actually what they're talking about? I said, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we looked at that impact, and that reduces the size of the pie by 66%, and that captures over 120 therapies. So you have to double the cohort because basically the Smart Pricing Act, which is based on the Biden budget proposal, you double everything up. So it's not 10, 15, and 20 drugs that get priced. It's 20, 30, and 40, on and on, et cetera, et cetera. And then by that point, you're up to 120 drugs that get captured in the cohort. Yep. So it's an enormous impact at year five. Yep. So I mean, it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. It is. And, and it. Uh, I think it's very disappointing that we've got an administration that seems to just go along with this and, and, and support it. Well, we talked about this last time. I mean, it's sort of ironic that a lot of these pricing bills, the political support for these bills comes from California, Massachusetts, New Jersey, <laughs> New York. Basically, you can model the top four or five markets globally for innovation right now. And, and it's where all these pricing bills are coming from. It, it does seem to be cutting off your nose despite your face somewhat. It, it does. And, you know, and I, and I live day to day in an environment where I, um, I'm sorry to say that a lot of these elected officials talk out of both sides of their mouths and tell of course. us how much they love the industry and then, um, you know, stick a knife in our back the, the, the next day with, with legislation that's harmful to us. Um, and I try to explain to them that um, you, you can't, uh, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Someone sometimes has to stand up for the investment that's made in developing the therapies that are going to cure Californians in, in the future, and that it's an investment that we need to make, and that are going to cure people in Massachusetts and New York and these other big biotech states as well. But there's sort of a populist attitude that, uh, you know, it uh, gets you votes if you attack attack the drug industry. You know, I look at um, the, the uh, Biden cancer moonshot version <laughs> two, right? Uh, and it's another example of exactly what I'm saying. Here's here's a president who says, well, we're going to encourage our companies to get together and invest in research to develop new oncology drugs. And then once you do that, we're going to tell you what the price is going to be. Right. <laughs> so, I again, I happened to be around one of our major pharma R&D VPs one day, and I asked him about the cancer moonshot. And he said, you can't ask me about the cancer moonshot without talking about the IRA. At, at the same time. Regardless of both sides of the mouth, the reality is there is a mounting understanding that there are problems with the IRA and there are real penalties here. And these are not just theoretical nor superficial. They are practical. I mean, if we look at, for example, one of the aspects of the IRA, which has not been discussed, is essentially it doesn't matter anymore when your patent actually expires. It's when you come to market. When we modeled the impact of, say, the accelerated approvals for oncology, which has been seen as a, a huge win for patients in particular. I mean, we're solving 50% of melanoma now for five years. I mean, that was a death sentence 10 yep. years ago. 
you're trading often painfully small market segments, you know, right. acute lymphoblastic leukemia, 400 people a year on an accelerated approval for peak sales, which probably come in year 12 or 13. If you're in a yep. small molecule, you're trading orphan revenue now for large revenue. You're not going to do the orphan therapy anymore. I, I was just about to say the orphan drug provision is a disaster. Yeah, it right? absolutely is. Because orphan, orphan drugs were obviously... Orphan drugs are, are, are a way to be able to treat a portion of the population that wouldn't ordinarily see treatment, and FDA's done a lot to spur the regulatory review process. And the that. NIH. That's and, where all the and, NIH funding yeah. is going into these yeah. orphan therapeutics but, now. But then, you know, second indication comes along, which a lot of the time in the past, of course, just from a pure market standpoint, you get in the door with that orphan indication, you come in with a second indication, and now all of a sudden you're, you're in the... Venus flytrap of the IRA. Yeah, exactly right. You're, you're, you're back into it again. So... What motivation is there to develop orphan drugs? When we did the numbers, I wanted to make sure we weren't off base because we modeled the revenue and the clinical research for a, a therapeutic. I'm not going to say which one. And we were projecting everything on the wall. You know, it's a lot of numbers. And I remember looking at that. Wait a minute. We got a small revenue here and we're trading the big revenue there. We got a problem. We ran the data and we're like, holy cow, we were. So we went and met with one of the heads of research for that company, sat down with him. I pulled open my computer. I'm like, um, is this right? I mean, are we right here on our assumptions? And she looked at me and she sort of chuckled. She said, it was our last acquisition. You notice it wasn't in oncology. This is not being said publicly, but behind the scenes, they are making very, very aggressive moves with their pipeline. Absolutely. And, you know, look at some of the other indications that involve significant risk in investment, research, and development. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's oh, disease. Neurology. Neuro anything in neurology, yeah. right? I mean, it was a big enough risk before this. Now look at it. Alzheimer's had a 99.5% failure rate before SI and Biogen. And even now you're at 98.5. I mean, it's yeah. hardly bellwether, you know, yeah. no one's going to be running into start investing there. Yeah. Plus with everything that CMS has been doing around this. Right. The reality is Joe, and, and again, this is something we should discuss a little bit because of the provisions separating and treating large and small molecules differently. Yeah. We looked at a couple post-marketing studies. So these are studies where they looked at drugs that were approved, and then they went back and said, okay, what were, where were the approval studies for this? Where, where was this work done? And the idea of the study was to say, okay, was this academic? Was it corporate? But what was very interesting, 455 studies in small molecules for neurology, none in large molecules, zero. Yep. Yep. Because what that says is all the proprietary research that's been in large molecules has been inside the companies and it's not been let out. So the overwhelming majority of this work in neurology has been small molecules, which makes sense because it crosses the blood-brain barrier. There are issues there with large molecules. What do we do about the disincentives now we've created for neurology? Talk about an unmet medical need. So I was with um, one of our high-level elected officials in the state one day recently talking about Biocom California and our constituency and the, and the different types of companies. And that official said to me that I should understand that there's nothing wrong with the biotech industry. It's the pharma industry that's the, that's the <laughs> issue. <laughs> and, and I said... Uh, yeah, there's a huge segmentation there now, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I said, those two are so inextricably linked. I, we need to talk. You need to understand yeah this. This isn't 1981 anymore. Right. Exactly. What's interesting though, you know, California arguably is the home of large molecules, biologics. This is where the biotechnology sector started. You know, we're sitting in one of the hotbeds here in San Diego. We're just off Torrey Pines Boulevard here in La Jolla. 
what's intriguing to me is if you look at, say, the last Nobel Prize for Chemistry is a startup here from San Diego. It's the CEO of a biotech company. So there's like a return now to medicinal chemistry. I did an interview with Jeff Yonker, who's the CEO of Belhara. It's a spin out from that same breeder where the, the CEO won the Nobel Prize. I mean, there's a great pedigree there, but there's real solid chemical science going on again because we there's such an area of unmet medical need in neurology yep. and in oncology to penetrate the solid tumor mass. You know, it just seems like we're being extremely short-sighted here. When you talk about being up here on Torrey Pines Mesa, you can walk not a hundred yards up the road here and you come to the J&J research facility and just past that is the Vertex research facility. We're maybe a mile away from Pfizer. Again, to my comment that these are inextricably linked, they're here so that not only so that they can be in a major, in a major research center to do their R and D work, but so that they can be side by side with the startup biotech companies and take advantage of the innovation and the, and, the, and the talent and the potential for partnership. You know, we do five or six partnering days a year exclusively with individual pharma companies. And they come to us and they ask us to find them 40 or 50 of our members in a certain area of indication that um, they're interested in, in licensing and doing partnership in. Uh, so they're so dependent. Uh, the farmers are so dependent on, on the biotech company and vice versa. Absolutely. As well. It's an ecosystem. Yeah. Well, not only that, I mean, I just drove by Scripps getting here, which I yep. do whenever we meet. And then you got La Jolla a little bit further, right. UCSD. I mean, there's an enormous research infrastructure here. I yeah. mean, one of the top in the world, Massachusetts, South San Francisco. I mean, it's well known. One of the things that's concerning us, though, and we've been looking at some of the data, which we'd already seen occurring before IRA and the equity crash last year. We met with Steve Potts, the CEO of a company in Phoenix, Arizona, a small molecule oncology company. And we ran the numbers on Phoenix. There's 10x growth in life sciences investments in Phoenix. Is this edifice, this sort of idea that California is indestructible around the sector, is that starting to get chipped away a little bit? I think there's no questioning the fact that the powerhouse of early stage research, and you talk about Scripps and Salk and you know up in the Bay Area, Stanford and, and USF and Berkeley are like nothing else anywhere. You can't go to Arizona and find that. You, you can't go anywhere else. That's always been and I think is always going to be sort of the centerpiece. You know, we've got the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine here, um, just refunded, voted by the citizens of California two years ago, refunded at $5.5 billion to develop uh, not only stem cell therapies now, but uh, therapies that are in any way related to, to regenerative medicine as well. So, you know, well, Cal- Afibody technologies too, yep. sort of next generation yep. monoclonal antibodies, very exciting. You know, so so California is a powerhouse uh, when it comes to early stage research and, and tech transfer and the universities that we have and the venture community that, that exists here. I think the big challenge here in California is just simply becoming the fact that it's just so expensive yeah. to, to do business here. Uh, real estate is so expensive, especially up in the Bay Area. Yeah. And the other problem we've got is that housing is, is, is becoming so expensive that it just becomes impossible to pay employees at a level where the average person can afford to buy a house in San Diego, let alone in, in San Francisco. Yeah. Right? Uh, L.A. is becoming more popular for, for biotechnology now because it's actually more affordable yeah. than San Francisco or, or uh, the Bay Area. So, And it's something of an untapped, I mean, I don't want to say untapped yeah. market, but you just haven't had that hub there. 
and there's there's a lot of infrastructure there to support that hub. UCLA Med Center is the second largest employer in the state after the U.S. Navy here in San Diego. Yeah. So, and then you know, as far as as far as doing clinical trials, you've got City of Hope, you've got yeah. Cedar Sinai up there. You've got incredible, obviously incredible, uh, basic research that goes on at Caltech. And now we've got venture funding in L.A. Uh, with uh, Westlake Ventures and others. The biotech real estate market. Now, see, L.A. is an area where historically they really haven't had much in the way of biotech facilities and incubators and, and labs. So they're kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum where they need to develop their biotech real estate in, in L.A. Uh, so I, I think that creates opportunities as well. You know, one of the things that L.A. talked about when we first went up there to help them to, to develop their biotech cluster uh, was that they didn't have the talent base up there because they just didn't have the companies and couldn't draw people to L.A. and didn't have the funding. And that's beginning to change a lot. So I think there are a lot of positives about California, but we unfortunately we've got an administration that uh, talks about the greed of this industry instead of partnering with us. I've been here for a number of years now, but when I think about the contrast between the 90s when Pete Wilson created his biotech advisory committee because he wanted to help the biotech industry to grow in California. And I would go up there and meet regularly with other biotech industry representatives to talk with him about how we could incentivize the industry to grow here in California and, and to provide the land and the water and the electricity and other things that we need to what's happening now where we've got an administration that uh, continually talks about the greed of, of the industry here. That's a challenge. Why, why come to California when you've got a governor who's, who's saying, well, these, these guys are just about money and greed? Based on 2021, the net-net profitability of the biopharma sector as a whole was 14%, slightly less than the soft drink sector. Last year, 2022, the net-net profitability of the sector was 18%, driven mostly by one company that had a very successful vaccine program. I'm, you may have heard. They're sitting on $40 billion in cash. So that sort of throws the numbers off, but still 18% puts it slightly under the coal mining sector. It's not like the pharmaceutical sector is this grossly overly profitable. It's in like the top 15, top 20, yeah. you know, biotech is 99th out of a hundred. There's a real misunderstanding here that the sector is, like you said, gratuitously profitable. I was looking at the various sectors yesterday and, and, uh, you know, what's, what's doing well, it's chips and sensors and telecommunications. Yeah. It's not Biotech, healthcare is is up there, but healthcare is a little. It's not you can't throw biotech into healthcare. Yeah, reinsurance and investment trusts are better than yeah. you know, biotech. Yeah. You know, but you know the thing the thing is that that the biotech industry and the pharma industry needs to do. We need to do a much much better job getting the public to appreciate what we do to save lives. And, and I think the vaccines are a good example of it, right? Two things about the vaccines, as, as we both know. Prior to 2020, you couldn't get anybody to invest in a vaccine company to save your life. Absolutely not. We were cutting right. capacity globally. No one, yeah. you couldn't build factories even. Right. Nobody would, would invest in a, in, a, in a vaccine company. We had two or three companies that were successful in, in developing vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. And, and then the impression was, well, gosh, these companies develop these vaccines in less than a year, uh, and look at all the money they're making. Obviously, this is the, the feeling was well, this wasn't that hard. When mRNA technology goes back 20 years in, in its development, yeah. evolution in an evolutionary way to get to, to to where we were, right? But we did that, and um, we just 
walked away and, and said, okay, solve that problem. Instead of really informing and educating the public about what that took, I'll go a step further. I've said this before, and I think we should have done a much better job of patting ourselves on the back to tell people what a great industry this is that we have that's able to, to, to do this and save the world. Uh, but we didn't do that. How much of the problem that the industry is having now, to say from a public relations standpoint, is related to the prescription drug benefit and the out-of-pocket that everyone had been dealing with? I mean, that is one part of the IRA, the $2,000 yeah. cap. The fact is there was this unlimited out-of-pocket uh, once you pass the donut hole. Right. With the personalized medicine, with the approach to new stratified therapies, you're dealing with a multi-billion dollar investment on a population of 400 people a year. That's going to be an expensive asset. There's yeah. just no way around it. I think, first of all, we and our colleagues at the organizations in Washington uh, have long said that we need to address the out-of-pocket. And we did in the IRA. And we supported that part of the IRA to reduce out-of-pocket costs, right? It seems to have gotten just lost in the chatter, Yeah. right? The amazing thing is that it, it was a major issue at one time. If we could deal with the out-of-pocket, you yeah. know. But again, it goes to what I was saying earlier. I, I don't know what will satiate the politicians who continue to want to find ways to make this an issue. We've got the now the 10 drugs that are going to be negotiated. We've got the out-of-pocket costs. And we just keep hearing more and more about how we need to go farther. You know, Bernie Sanders says that he won't confirm the new director of the NIH until uh, the Biden administration deals with marching rights. <laughs> Boy, a lot there to pick up again. Let's, um, <laughs> if we look at mRNA as a platform, it was mostly as a cancer vector. That's how it was right. developed. Yep. The Biden administration, when we were at bio last year, had just made a decision that through the World Trade Organization, they were going to waive all the intellectual property around mRNA. Okay, you waive the platform around the vaccines for COVID, that doesn't mean necessarily that it's only for COVID, right. right? What's to limit a state actor like China, Brazil, South Korea, now having unfettered access to those IP platforms? What is your opinion? What are you hearing from your partners here and your members? Well, I mean, the first thing I'm hearing is that it was a cute political trick. Sure. First of all, to draw the conclusion that if you open up intellectual property around mRNA, that economically underdeveloped countries are going to benefit is a joke, right? I would love for that to be the case, but they don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the distribution systems. They don't have the ability to do what we did with, with mRNA. So better for our companies to keep that intellectual property, develop it, and do what companies like Pfizer did and, and go to the underdeveloped countries and provide them with the, with the product. So I think that's a huge deal. Across the board, when you talk about mRNA as a, as a, as a cancer technology, related technology, you know, countries like China are not just sitting on the sidelines and saying, well, we'll, we'll just wait and see how this works out. Absolutely right? not. They're aggressively going after the opportunity to take advantage of what we're doing, to pirate technologies. To, I've talked to Chinese companies recently that have come to us here and said, um, we've got a blank checkbook to acquire and license in assets. So can you help us to find those assets? It goes to the fact that there's no intellectual property protection in China. And then it all trickles down again to, you know, they're, they're looking at what we're doing here to restrict innovation and a restrict free market, and they're taking advantage of it. And they're focused mostly on the most 
advanced cutting edge science. Absolutely. China last year, I, I just um, had an interview with uh, Amitabh Chandra, just recorded a podcast from Harvard. You know, he pointed out that China last year popped up to number four in impactful publications in health science, life yeah. sciences. I mean, it's the first time they've been that high. They're higher than Italy now. They're higher than Germany. Yeah. That's a shocking movement very quickly, well, very quickly. Yeah. And there are different ways to get there. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I think they're using them all, Joe. Yes, I think they probably are. You mentioned marching rights. Yeah. Obviously, we've got a study coming out where we've looked at the complete chain of custody of all the composition of matter and mechanism yeah. of action patents of 363 drugs. It's not released yet. It's another one of these fun studies that took no time at all. But it's coming out. When we looked at the total amount of IP that actually came from the government where you could actually capture, where you could have all the mechanism of action and all the composition of matter. It's painfully small. It's just one or two therapies. There's nothing there. Just because you get one patent doesn't give you the drug. Meanwhile, you've got Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in the HELP Committee basically saying, we want to march in and take over patents. What would happen for an academic here at La Jolla or Scripps if suddenly the government's saying, okay, we're confiscating your patent and we're taking away your royalties and we're giving this to a competitor to produce? What's their opinion? Because you represent these folks. Their opinion, the reality is that you're effectively erasing all of the benefits that the Bayh-Dole Act provided when it was passed 40 plus years ago, right? Basic research is something that the government should invest in and then allow for the opportunity for those who can develop it further to make the investment in doing that. Again, you know, the investment that researchers make at the universities in developing these products then gets moved through the tech transfer process out of the university and provides a lot of benefits to the, to the university, right? Again, it's, you know, to me... It's just another political ploy. To your point, very, very little of that intellectual property that comes out of NIH can you point to and say, oh, here's, here's a big-time drug that was, was developed as, as a result of this. But it threatens the industry. It, it's another way of saying, well, we're going, to, we're going to restrict your ability to do innovation, make a return on your, on your innovation. And, you and know, the, well, I say the first thing that happens then, too, if they do that, is the companies are going to say, okay, we're not going to... We're right. not going to touch this with a barge pole then. Right. Well, we'll maybe do a private contract with you in a research partnership, but we're not going to touch government grants anymore. Yeah. I mean, it just destroys the entire NIH research pipeline. I mean, they're talking about putting in fair pricing provisions again, which Varner had done, yeah. had basically done research on and showed that there was an 85% drop in partnerships. I mean, if you put fair pricing, if the Congress forces the fair pricing clauses into NIH grants, we know what happens. The experiment's been run before. You have an 85% drop in partnerships immediately. Yeah, it just goes away. You know, again, it's another irony that we deal with because we've got such a close relationship ourselves here at Biocom California with the NIH, uh, working with their grants programs, in particular their N NCI, National Cancer Institute, Small Business Innovation Research Grants. And it's, it's another irony where, you know, you, you've got the work that we do with them to provide the opportunity for our small companies to access that grant funding. And then the government comes in and says, oh, by the way, uh, we, we could just come in anytime, just take that, that intellectual property away 
from, from you. That's not the way margin rights were set up anyway. It was intended to be for those rare occurrences where there was intellectual property that could have a potential impact on health and that wasn't being developed that they could commit. commit right. I mean, there was poaching or right. rent-seeking behavior or something like that yeah. where they weren't negotiating fairly or on yep. the other side, a company's gone and bought up all the patents and then you know exercising yeah. unfair comp- competitive structures and setting up a monopoly position. The whole point was to avoid that. And that's not what's happening here. That's certainly not the case of Extandi. Well, there's a, there's this, unfortunately, there's there's this attitude on the part of some of the more radical members of Congress that the NIH is just a candy store for industry. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not true. There was a wonderful situation where Oxford had had a successful phase two on their COVID vaccine. And all of these European politicians were saying, hey, great, That's we have an academic vaccine. We, we can get it for free. Like Oxford was going to be able to produce 2 billion <laughs> doses of vaccine just suddenly on their back. Yeah. And literally these politicians were naive enough to say, oh, well, we'll, we'll get this for free then. Well, it, it's it's uh, I, I think it's uh, related also to the fact that our governor here said that insulin was too costly and the state was going to produce insulin and to provide it to patients at a, at a significant discount, right? What's happening now is the state's production of insulin is actually going to take place at companies that produce insulin. The state's not going to go build manufacturing facilities for insulin. And then on top of that, you know, what what did it do? It just, it did spur competition because I think Lilly then came out and said they were going to provide significant discounts for their insulin in California. So Yeah, there was a wonderful JAMA article uh, last year that showed that insulin, 70 cents out of every dollar of insulin was going to the middlemen brokers and the PBMs yeah. and well, the wholesalers. 30 cents on the dollar was ending up on the company balance sheet. And most of that was ending up on the PBMs. We, I published an article in STAT four years ago when we were doing the HR3 analysis where we were seeing 60% holes in insulin revenue and the companies that provided the largest margin to the PBMs were getting the largest volume in Medicare. Yeah. So you, you already, yeah. you just saw that in the data already. And PBMs aren't providing these days any benefit to anyone but the PBMs, right? I think there are three PBMs in the country that control 80%, 80% of the yeah. drugs. And, and it's going into their pockets. There was a wonderful situation where the PCSK9 therapeutics, which everyone thought that there were the monoclonal antibodies for uh, lipid-lowering treatments, the gene therapy, that were supposed to be the competitor to Lipitor, except Lipitor went generic. And so it was hard to fight free. And so uh, Amgen and Sanofi had these PCSK9s that were highly effective, but they were $15,000, not free. Even though they were 20% better, the market forces didn't work out. And so they bilaterally said, okay, we're going to drop pricing by 50, 60% on these PCSK9s. And there was a letter leaked from one of the PBMs that was then published or referenced in an article and it said, well, that's great. Thank you very much. Oh, by the way, we're keeping the rebate. You're going to pay us the kickback at the same level for 24 months, regardless if you've lowered your price or not. I'm not an expert in this area, but I continue to ask the question about whether we really need PBMs. And if we can somehow eliminate that part of the, the uh, distribution chain and uh, create better relationships directly between the, the pharmacies and insurance companies and the drug companies themselves. I think obviously the PBMs we're there initially to put in a price buffer and a yep. price control. It'll be interesting to see what shakes out. There's antitrust legislation coming now. It's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. Yeah, really will. I have to say, I've been taking a few uh, 
punches at Congress. I do feel positive about the fact that they're really beginning to call the PBMs to the table and really beginning to better investigate and understand the kind of monopoly that, that these PBMs have. So last year at Bio, we saw some of these things on the horizon. We knew that the Build Back Better agenda, which became IRA, was coming. We'd seen the discussions around the WTO. And a lot of us thought that, okay, there's a lot of bluster here, but they probably wouldn't pass. Unfortunately, they did. Where do you think this ends up in a year, two years for the next election show? Where, where do we land here? I think from some of the conversations I've had on the Hill that with the Republican-controlled House, and, and again, there's a very thin margin there, and you always have to worry about what some members are going to do to try to get themselves reelected. And some of the Republicans uh, are quite mad at the industry, too. Yeah. They feel they're not happy about how COVID was played, so there's some issues there. There are some issues. So I think we have, as advocacy organizations, a lot of work to continue to do to ensure that not only our supporters on the Republican side, but uh, some on, on the Democrat side of the aisle who have been more receptive to working with us, that we work hard to create that understanding and partnership, take the, take the work that Vital Transformations has done, uh, and make sure that all members understand what, what this potential impact is going to be. So my first answer is uh, the ball's in our court. We've got work to do, and, um, and, and we've got to make sure that we do everything we can to keep this from being the potential slippery slope that, that, it, that it could be. You know, we're beginning to see some positive signs in the economy a little bit. Inflation seems to have leveled off a little bit. The Fed uh, at least has taken a pause on interest rates. Stock market seems to be moving back up into positive territory. You know, from what we see here at Biocom California, our, our investor conference a couple of months ago was very successful. We've got pharma companies coming to us now and saying that they want to do more partnering days with us. So... I'm optimistic. I, th I think the industry, and I've been in the industry for 33 years now, 33, 30, 30, <laughs> no, I think back it's been 35 years that I've, that I've been in the industry. But who's counting? Uh, and who's counting? <laughs> you know, the, you look at the remarkable progress that the industry's made over time and, and, and some of the challenges that we've we faced. Um, you know, we, we continue to go to work every day to do what we do to improve health and quality of life. And, um, uh, I don't think it's about greed, and I think we, again, I think we need to do everything we can to ensure that the public and elected officials understand that uh, this is not a, a money grab. People go to work every day in this industry because they want to help people out. Joe Panetta, President and CEO of Biocom California. Joe, it's always great to see you, sir. Same here. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for coming down to talk with me. Thanks for the invitation. My pleasure. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodine. Our project manager is Gwen O'Laughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.